KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll talk about Orange County. Since 1955, it's been the home of the happiest place on earth, in Anaheim, you know, Disneyland. Ronald Reagan called Orange County the place where all good Republicans go to die. But there's another history of Orange County, a history of white supremacy and right-wing power and of people's battles to resist. That history is told in a wonderful new book, A People's Guide to Orange County. Gustavo Ariano is one of the authors. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also later in the show, American universities in the 1960s. Was that a golden age destroyed by student radicals who were protesting the war in Vietnam and racism in America? Historian Ellen Schrecker will explain. Her new book is The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 60s. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news in Washington this week, of course, is that Stephen Breyer will retire from the Supreme Court. We heard a huge sigh of relief from liberals because since Democrats controlled the Senate 50 to 50 with Vice President Harris as the tiebreaker. That means Joe Biden will get to name a Supreme Court justice. Um, the Washington Post subhead said that Biden will have a chance to make his mark on history by nominating the first African-American female justice. What have you heard on this front? Well, he basically pledged that in the course of his campaign. So I don't think that's what we would call uh, a scoop in terms of the Washington Post subhead. (laughs) And there are uh, two or three um, black female judges, uh, one on the D.C. uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, one on uh, the California Supreme Court, a few others who who fit that criterion and uh, fit a bunch of others as well. And so there's, I think, a relatively known universe of, uh, of, of possible appointees out there. But given everything that's happened in the Senate over the last year, doesn't this mean really that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema will pick the next Supreme Court justice? Well, to a certain degree, but this has not been the kind of issue on which they've been obstructionist yet. They have basically, with I think one exception uh, by Manchin, confirmed all of Joe Biden's appointees. And even when they opposed striking down the filibuster to pass a voting rights bill, they did both vote for the voting rights bill. So uh, I'm not at all sure that uh, two things, that this really is an issue with them. And even if it is an issue with them, whether they want to, you know, uh, go out on a limb on this as well as everything else. So for the moment, Uh, Not that they've earned it in a certain sense, but for the moment, I don't think that should be a primary worry uh, among our our fellow liberals and lefties. Well, I have a far out idea about uh, a person who could be nominated uh, who was not one of those on the list that you mentioned, and that's Kamala Harris. She was attorney general 
of the state of California before she was a senator. Of course, she is talked about as a candidate in the 2024 Democratic primaries because the vice president is always an obvious successor uh, to, to the president. But let's remember, I can't forget how many votes she got in the 2020, 2020 Democratic primaries. I'm sure you remember she got zero. She campaigned for a whole year in Iowa and then just on the eve of, of the uh, Iowa caucuses, she pulled out because the opinion polls, especially in California, said that even in her home state, Democrats weren't going to vote for her. So I don't think she's a very promising candidate for president in 2024, uh, but she's got to be somewhere in America's political future. And here's one. Well, that is a fascinating idea, John. Of course, that would mean that not only would the Senate vote to confirm her, and <laughs> she would have to cast the tie-breaking vote for herself, but that Biden would also, therefore, have to send up a nomination uh, for vice president to the House and Senate, and that would have to come before the November elections. Uh, and that would be rather fraught. Uh, and I think that might uh, bring the hesitations of Manchin back into the game. And it's not at all clear that that is a headache that Biden would want to inflict upon himself in addition to all the other headaches he currently suffers from. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating idea, but it, there are all kinds of immediate results that would flow from it that would be, I think, a little bit tough for Biden. You have, uh, you have convinced me of the foolhardiness of my suggestion. So let's move on to the other headlines of the week, which of course are about Ukraine. They tell us that Putin is about to send the Russian army into a war with Ukraine, and Putin says his concern is preventing Ukraine from joining NATO, which would further the NATO encirclement of Russia that began with Clinton and Bush and uh, would bring enemy military bases ever closer to Russia. You recently wrote about Putin, uh, Ukraine, and your grandmother. What's the story there? Well, I, I mean, the larger thesis is I don't think Putin actually thinks that uh, uh, NATO would pose a military threat to Russia. I don't think uh, anyone uh, in, in NATO actually considers attacking or invading Russia per se. You know, I mean, there may be, you know, I mean, if, if he goes in to Ukraine and uh, the Baltic states, let's say, I would envision, you know, there would be a, a response, but not, uh, not an attack that's... Uh, simply by virtue of there being uh, NATO nations on, uh, on Russia's border. I think he's concerned about liberalism at home, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute since you asked about my grandmother. My grandmother uh, was a, a, a Russian Jewish girl still in her teens, uh, uh, fleeing Tsarist Russia, fleeing a bunch of stuff, which I need not get into here since some of it is family related. But she came by herself as a teenager. And when she got through Ellis Island, they had given her the name Edith, which, of course, is an English name. Her original given name, of course, was not in English, nor was it in Russian, nor was it in Yiddish, nor was it in Hebrew. 
It was an Italianized version of an Egyptian name. It was Aida, as in the opera. And since you went by Edith, we, you know, the family here in the States, her kids and her grandchildren, etc., never really found out about Aida until decades later. And none of us could actually figure out by that time she was deceased. None of us could actually figure out how uh, a, a Russian Jewish girl came to be named Aida. But I was reading a biography of Trotsky some years ago, who, like my grandmother, was uh, born and in his case, somewhat raised, she was born and fully raised in Odessa uh, on the Black Sea. And in reading that biography of Trotsky, I came across a sentence that read, when Trotsky was 10, a mania for Italian opera swept the Odessa upper classes. Now, uh, you know, my, my grandmother's uncle was in the 0.0001% of Russian Jews who was actually in the upper classes. He owned uh, some sh sugar uh, plantations and refineries, or whatever we call sugar processing plants, in uh, southern Ukraine. Uh, and that explained why she was named Aida. But then I began sort of researching uh, old Odessa, where my grandmother grew up. And it turned out it really wasn't very much of a Russian city in many ways. It was more polyglot. It was more ethnically and religiously diverse. It had residents from uh, adjacent European countries, from Turkey, from some adjacent Middle East countries. And by all accounts, it was more of a European city than a Russian city. And I started to think that, in a sense, that's what Putin feels threatened by. The spirit of Odessa, the spirit of uh, a Western European uh, tolerance, and at least compared to the neo-Russian Orthodox Church autocracy that he's governing by, uh, a, a more liberal perspective. And that to the extent that he wants a buffer zone, the Putin buffer zone around Russia, it's not because, uh, like Stalin, he feared a, a, a vengeful Germany rising again with military might, which is why the, the primary reason why, why, why Stalin, you know, kept Russian soldiers uh, all throughout uh, Eastern Europe and uh, had them be communist nations. Um, it's certainly not because he fears the advent of capitalism. Russia is a kleptocratic capitalist economy. According to many reports, Putin has made out very well by that. So the last thing he wants to do is attack capitalism, uh, even in its Russian form and, and, and Russian wealth. Um, it's because it's an ideological and cultural question. He is really what he's afraid of. Oh, we know these are the people he moves against. Are are the, the the liberals and the lowercase D Democrats in Moscow and in Petersburg, and if he takes control of Ukraine, then in Kiev and in Odessa. So you know the last thing he wants is is a city where kids are named Aida, so to speak, the twentieth century equivalent thereof, whatever it may be. From Trotsky to your grandmother to us. Yeah, who knew? I mean, you know, had I not come across this sentence in this Trotsky biography. My grandmother's being named Aida would have remained, uh, I think, an, an eternal mystery. 
Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America today, which has become a regular feature of, of this uh, segment. 2021 was a banner year for American workers. Wages have been rising. Unemployment has been low. We've seen the revival of the strike at John Deere, at Kellogg's, at various other places. The approval rating of unions is risen to its highest level in 50 years. Now, 68% of Americans say they approve of unions. And in Washington, we have the most pro-labor administration in American history. So what's the news this week about class struggle in America? Well, the news is that uh, late last week, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics did what it does every year. It released uh, the new numbers on how many Americans are actually members of union. And so all of what you just said, John, is on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, the 70-year decline of union representation continued apace. Uh, it's now just a, a smidgen over 10% uh, nationally. And in the private sector, it's really down to 6%, mm. which is about one-seventh of what it was in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so on the one hand, how do you figure this out? Unions are more popular than ever. Uh, workers are showing militants, uh, both in terms of striking when they have a union and in terms of quitting when they don't have a union. Uh, but the size of unions continues to shrink. The actual raw number had the number of union members down by a little over 200,000. Uh, and, you know, the answer is that what passes for labor law, which is supposed to, you know, keep workers protected if they seek to form a union, uh, has been shredded by right-wing congresses and by right-wing judges and justices to the point that it offers no protection. And uh, management can do all kinds of things to intimidate uh, uh, workers in a unionization campaign as it Amazon clearly did as it at its uh, Bessemer, Alabama warehouse last year. There are people forming and joining unions, but they tend to be professionals who cannot be easily replaced. You find them in media outlets uh, here in D.C. You find them in think tanks. You find them at universities. But when workers can be replaced, you basically just don't find them. But I understand the things will get better, at least for Democrats and for Biden, whose approval ratings, of course, have hit new lows in the last few weeks. At least the American prospect says things will get better for Biden and the Democrats. Uh, what's the argument there? Well, it, it's a qualified argument. The argument there is he can get some decent things passed. He will certainly get a Supreme Court justice. Uh, he will probably get some elements of Build Back Better passed, uh, climate-related, childcare-related, pre-K-related uh, parts of that. Uh, that will help his standing somewhat. But there are two things he does not really control, uh, which are hanging over him. One is COVID, uh, and the other is inflation. Now, I think he can certainly make the case that elements of Build Back Better, if they're included in a bill that finally passes, like uh, reducing uh, drug prices and making childcare more affordable will reduce the cost of living for quite a number of Americans. But, you know, in, inflation is largely the result of all kinds of 
public policies set in motion over the last 50 years, uh, or simply the globalization of uh, many of the goods that uh, Americans uh, now buy. Uh, and, you know, he's, I think, the first president who's been serious about reviving goods manufacturing here in the United States, but that takes time. So he, he faces a lot of headwinds, even though I think he'll be able to turn around uh, some of them. Now, speaking of headwinds, I read in the prospect about a bill I'd never heard of before uh, that it has some surprising bipartisan support and is making progress getting through Congress, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021. These words have never been uttered on this program before. Why is this of interest to us? It is of interest to us because ocean shipping is one of the most concentrated oligopolistic industries that there is. And the fact of that is one of the major factors in uh, the inflation, which has you know, beset us and frankly beset most countries, which depend on imports, which are most countries. And, and so uh, there is some desire in Congress, also related to big tech, to deal with monopoly, uh, uh, monopoly control, and there's much more desire to deal with it in the administration. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. On Wednesday, Joe Biden blocked a huge copper mine that Trump had approved. This is the mine that threatened the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe area of northern Minnesota. This will help protect the hundreds of lakes, streams, rivers, and wetlands in this one million acre wilderness area from from potential toxic leaks from the mining. So thank you, Joe Biden. Thanks to the activists in Minnesota who've been fighting to protect the Boundary Waters uh, for many years. Let me just add one small note to this. When Jared and Ivanka moved to Washington, D.C. to go to work in the Trump White House, the house they rented was owned by the CEO of the Chilean company that was planning to mine copper in northern Minnesota. Small world? I'm not sure that's the whole story. Well, I, I didn't know. I, I certainly didn't know who they were renting that, uh, that home for. I, I suppose I should have uh, realized if there were uh, uh, Pinochet uh, portraits on the walls. But uh, this is news to me as well as to our, our listeners. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. And always great to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Orange County, California. Since 1955, it's been home of the happiest place on earth. In Anaheim, you know, Disneyland. Ronald Reagan called Orange County the place where all good Republicans go to die. But there's another Orange County, an Orange County with a history of white supremacy and right-wing power and of people's battles to resist. And that history is told in a wonderful new book, A People's Guide to Orange County. 
We're joined now by one of the authors, Gustavo Ariano. Of course, Gustavo is an indispensable columnist at the LA Times covering, as he says, Southern California, everything and a bunch of the West and beyond. He previously worked at the late lamented OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and an editor for six and wrote a memorable column called Ask a Mexican. He's also the author of the book Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. We talked about it here. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Gracias as always, John. Well, Orange County, just to review, has a population right now bigger than 21 of the states. It is big. It used to be dominated by conservative Republicans, but Hillary beat Trump there in 2016. And in 2020, Biden beat Trump in Orange County by a lot, 54 to 44%. But we're not going to talk about today's politics in Orange County. We're more interested in history and the places where history happened. Let's start with the most famous place in Orange County, Disneyland, and the happy day in August 1970 when the Yippies went to Disneyland. Well, you would probably remember that more than me, but uh, just because that's, that's you, you know, you wrote that great book, of course, uh, with uh, Mike Davis, uh, talking about uh, all of that era. But what you had was uh, Yippies, Abby Hoffman's group of merry pranksters, except a little bit more uh, prankster than Mary, coming in, deciding we're going to take over Disneyland. We're going to raise a flag and anoint our new king, Pigasus, a pig named Pigasus. And well, you can't do that in uh, early. 1970s Orange County. So until the pandemic hit, Disneyland had only closed two times for 9-11 and for this day where all of Orange County and all of Southern California law enforcement came to Disneyland to Main Street to crack down on the skulls of hippies and yippies. Uh, my favorite moment was when the yippies planted a Viet Cong flag at the top of Tom Sawyer's island. <laughs> you got to conquer. You got to conquer, at least for the yippies. You know, they, Disneyland by then was already what it still is today. You know, this place of just such crass commercialism. And it's interesting what we know in our book, you know, along with my co-authors, Elaine Lewinick, I think Elaine wrote that one, and Tuivo Dang, was that Disneyland, even though it's such crass commercialism, you still have resistance there. You have the yippies. It turns into a place where you have lawsuits pushing for LGBT rights. In recent years, I think like 40, my colleague Gabriel San Roman, formerly of KPFK, he dug up this stat that something like 40% of the people who go to Disneyland nowadays are Latinos. So Walt Disney is rolling in his cryogenic grave somewhere. <laughs> Moving right along, for anybody who drives north into Orange County from San Diego on the 5 freeway and did have done so in the last couple of decades, the San Clemente Border Control Checkpoint at, at Camp Pendleton is unavoidable and unforgettable. And for years, there was that unusual caution sign that we used to see alongside the freeway just before the checkpoint. Tell us about that. So it's technically yeah in Pendleton. So even though it's called San Clemente, it's not in Orange County, but it's they give it such an Adonai name. It's a border patrol uh, checkpoint. And they basically, when they want to, they could stop all cars and make sure that there's not, quote unquote, 
undocumented or illegals trying to come in. So before that, there was this notorious piece of California public art via Caltrans. It was a silhouette of a father, a daughter, and a girl with pigtails, a girl being pulled and then running across the board, uh, across the freeway because they, that's what you used to see a lot, especially in the 80s. And if you're not of a family of undocumented or, or of immigrants, you don't care about it. It's just for you, uh, you know, a hassle you have to deal with. But if you're someone like myself, a child of a formerly undocumented person, you don't want to be stopped ever by the Border Patrol. And in, and in Orange County, it took on the significance of, you know, it was a racialized place. Zach de la Rocha, the legendary frontman from Rage Against the Machine, a son of, a son of Orange County, by the way, graduated from University High School in Irvine. He says that one of the ways he got radicalized was one of his teachers at uni high used to refer to that or once referred to that place, uh, the border checkpoint in San Clemente as a wetback station. And that the entire uh, class laughed. And here's Zach, half white, half Chicano, saying, how disgusting is that that we're laughing about that? And that I mean, but thank you, racist uni high school teacher, because without your stupidity, we wouldn't have rage against the machine. And the, your book reports something I had forgotten about. In the late 1980s, 30 people were killed running across the freeway at that point. Remind us why they were running across the freeway? Because they were trying to come into this country for a better life, just like anyone who's ever come into this country. But they were not allowed into this country without papers because of uh, Reagan cracking down on the border. Eventually ends up passing the amnesty of 86. So I guess that Reagan isn't that bad compared to others, <laughs> which, well, you know, not, not much to be bragging about there. But it was a real sign. So this Border Patrol, uh, not the checkpoint so much, but the silhouette, the Caltrans design, like I— I understand why they did it, but it, it got immediately notorious and it still lives on. They don't, uh, the Caltrans does not have those signs anymore anywhere in, uh, in Southern California, but they still live on this idea that instead of trying to fix our problems, you're just going to tell, uh, you know, the, the transportation agency of the state, like, oh, try to remind people not to run over humans. <laughs> the last of these signs your book reports now hangs in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., next to an early printing of the Bill of Rights. Wow, that's incredible. I have a friend actually who ripped off one of those uh, Border Patrol checkpoints, so I'm not going to say what friend that is. But, <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. They're huge. They're imposing. They're, you know... And they just have it there as, you know, we never forget, never forget what this state, what this country throws down upon undocumented people trying to get a better life. Well, the reason that Mexicans were coming to Orange County, of course, for decades was to work, to work especially in the orange groves of Orange County. The men picked the oranges, the women worked in the packing plants. A part of Orange County history that not very many people know about is the Citrus War in Anaheim of 1936. This is part of your book. Yeah, there's still an orange grove uh, near the corner of Harbor and Santa Ana Street, right across the street from the Anaheim Police Department. And everyone knows it. The oranges grow. They drop to the ground. That's that. But that was the site of this Citrus War in 1936. So what happened was, you know, height of the Great Depression, 75% of Orange County citrus force, about 3,000 people, they throw down their shears, their bags, and they go on strike. They're trying to form a union. They want higher wages. All the, you know, because they're getting exploited dramatically. My, you know, my great-grandpa, my grandpa, they were in that area. They weren't part of the citrus war, but they definitely worked those orange groves. So what does Orange County decide to do? Again, 
You get all of law enforcement together. We're talking about the highway patrol. We're talking about the sheriff's department, police departments. Uh, get uh, you know football players from USC with baseball bats chasing around Mexicans, and they just crack down on on this strike. I mean, this strike was long forgotten in the Orange County history books, but it's a very important strike. Kerry McWilliams, a legendary labor, uh, progressive historian, he himself says that he got radicalized in Orange County, and in his book uh, was I think it was Southern California country, the most famous one, or it might have been the other one, uh, factories in the field, he said what was going on in Orange County with the Orange Groves was, uh, and specifically when um, they rounded up all these strikers, was fascism in practice. Those are his exact words. He was there to see it. He himself writes about how he saw his former classmates from USC uh, you know, uh, making, forcing Mexicans around like they were Nazi guards at a concentration camp. And closer to the present, there was a lot of uh, direct action protest at another legendary Orange County location, the San Onofre Nuclear Plant. You can't miss it when you're driving down the five. The construction began there, I believe, in the late 60s of a nuclear power generating station, and it was expanded in the 70s, and the protest movements against its presence also expanded in the 70s. Yeah, this is a place, of course, a nuclear power station Back in the days, put in a place where, oh, even if there's a meltdown, no one will die. Well, Orange County kept growing and growing and growing. So it's not that far off from like the southernmost city, San Clemente. But more importantly, it's nuclear power, nuclear power, power, something that its advocates say is like incredible and life saving. But we all know it has a half life of what, half a million years or something like that. So you had a lot of people protesting outside the gates, getting arrested, trying to jump into the gates. And those protests eventually worked. The new, the, you know, the the acronym for it is Songs. So Songs finally shut down last decade, and now there's a long, long process of trying to uh, disassemble it. And where are you gonna, you know, take all those uh, spent rods? And you know, that's it's still an issue that's happening. But you want to talk about a place where the insurmountable can actually happen? It's Orange County, where you know you have a lot of Orange County gets all the notoriety for the conservatives of the past. But what our book tries to show is that resistance not only happens, but eventually most of the times it wins. It wins. 15,000 protesters at the biggest demonstration at San Onofre. Right now there's 3.6 million pounds of radioactive nuclear waste <laughs> stored on the site in thinly walled canisters 100 feet from the ocean. This is a tsunami zone. It's near two earthquake faults and is within 50, 50 miles of more than 8 million residents. I have a friend who's buying a house in Laguna right now. And one of the yeah. things that the seller has to disclose is that there's a nuclear power plant 20 miles down the road. That's part of the real estate law in Orange <laughs> County now. You must disclose the risk of living in Orange County because of the San Onofre plant. Well, I'm in Anaheim, so I don't have to worry about that <laughs> nuclear power plant exploding one day. Well, closer to you in Orange is a, is a place that almost nobody knows about, the ICE Detention Center in Orange. It's called the Theo Lacey Detention Center. You know something about this. Yes, this is something that I, we used to cover extensively when I was at OC Weekly. So Theo Lacey is the name of the official jail in Orange County, named after a former, the first sheriff of Orange County, Theo Lacey. And as 
the prisoner population, as the jail population started to drop down, you had a lot of local jails figure, well, we have empty cells. We need to make money off of this. So let's start housing and doc, you know, uh, people arrested by ICE in our facilities. This happened at the Theo Lacey facility. This happened at the Santa Ana jail as well. Basically, you know, in Orange County, of course, being long a very xenophobic place, it uh, the, the process started off pretty smooth. But in the past, in this century, and so in the past 20 years, you've really had a huge movement of youth, of undocumented youth and allies saying, we're not going to take this anymore. Not only are we're not going to just protest anymore either. We're going to do media to expose the sham and the abuses that are happening in these jails. We're going to get with uh, like the ACLU and other lawyers to be able to do lawsuits and targeted slowly but surely the eradication of these sorts of agreements. So again, the Theo Lacey facility, a place of shame, but eventually a place of resistance that ended up getting to a better place for everyone involved. And another key Orange County location that has been crucial in the transformation of Orange County over the last 30 years uh, came in 1975 when refugees from the Vietnam War arrived in Orange County. They were housed when they first arrived at a Tent Village at Camp Pendleton. Right now, it's closed to the public, only open if you have military credentials. But tell us about the history of re refugee housing at Camp Pendleton. Yeah, this was a place where, uh, you know, after the Vietnam War, after we bombed the country to smithereens, you have a lot of refugees. Uh, you know, for the Marines, that was a quickest place to land all these refugees. You had these tent cities, tens of thousands of people landing up there. And the idea, at least the ostensible idea with any refugee resettlement in the United States, they want to spread them all across the country for, you know, for reasons known only to them. Basically, they don't want people to keep the ways of the old country. But Pendleton is just down the fire freeway from uh, Orange County. Eventually, you had a lot of these refugees end up in what's now known as Little Saigon. So the cities of Westminster and Garden Grove mostly, with also pockets in Fountain Valley and Santana. And there was one church in particular from Garden Grove, St. Anselm's. I believe it's an Episcopal church. But they helped out in resettling a lot of these refugees. And they ended up in that area of Orange County because you still had a lot of strawberry fields. You still had a lot of cheap housing. And you also had uh, you know, a lot of opportunities for these Vietnamese. So because of this proximity and because of the organizing of these Vietnamese refugees, now you have in Little Saigon the largest uh, population of Vietnamese in the world outside of Vietnam in Orange County. And the other recent immigrants to Orange County uh, have been Muslims. Your book has a wonderful section on an institution, I guess we can call it, called Taco Trucks at Every Mosque. <laughs> this is sort of your territory. <laughs> this is my good friend, Raida Hamida. Raida, uh, born and bred uh, Palestinian in Anaheim, loves tacos, loves uh, her Islamic faith, and then here comes President Trump uh, maligning Muslims and Mexicans and specifically taco trucks or taco salads at every corner. So she connects with a fr another friend of mine, Ben Vasquez. He is longtime board member of another organization that we highlight in People's Guide to Orange County, the Centro Cultural, Cultural de Mexico, which I argue the whole everything progressive in Orange, almost everything progressive in Orange County in the past 20 years can be traced back to the Centro. And so this is one of the things. Uh, Rita and Ben say, well, how can we get our two communities together. Well, we love mosques. Well, we love tacos. Everyone loves tacos. So uh, Rida and Ben, they hired a taquero to 
make tacos for free. Um, and so, you know, using halal meat, halal beef, and halal chicken. So it, you know, everyone wants free food. So you would have these Islamic services. After that, here you get catered. And it's not in the book because it was too late. But in, last year, Rida extended that to have tacos at a mosque and free COVID vaccinations. So Rida is just one of the great stories of Orange County, just one of many stories that we tell in our book. The book is A People's Guide to Orange County. The authors are Elaine Lewinick, Tuivo Dang, and our man, Gustavo Ariano. Gustavo, thank you for speaking with us today. Gracias as always, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. American universities in the 60s, was that a golden age destroyed by student radicals protesting the war in Vietnam and racism in America? For some answers, we turn to Ellen Schrecker. She's been our leading historian of McCarthyism for decades. Her books include No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities. She taught American history for years at Yeshiva University. Now she's got a new book out. It's called The Lost Promise. Ellen Schrecker, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, let's acknowledge at the outset that this is a personal story for both of us. We're both part of the student movements of the 60s. Then we both spent our lives teaching in universities. So this is our life, pretty much. Yes. And this is a period when universities are expanding enormously, doubling and tripling in enrollments. Faculties are expanding even more. Graduate students are really expanding. And the schools are being transformed from elite to popular institutions. Uh, they're sort of the quintessential institution of Cold War liberalism in a way, in that there's a kind of sense that somehow they're going to solve Americans, America's problems and restore social mobility and carry out wonderful research and save the world. In the meantime, what is happening is that a whole generation of graduate students, you're part of it, I'm part of it, uh, are being uh, lured into the academy because the powers that be are afraid that there aren't gonna be enough faculty members for the baby boomers who are going to swarm onto the campus. So they literally threw money at us. Uh, there was prestige, there was intellectual excitement, and it was all completely affordable. Plus, there were jobs all over. And uh, even people who were, this was something that really surprised me in my research, uh, even people who were fired for political reasons could get other jobs in uh, the university. That had not happened in the 50s. So you say this is a story of decline, but Today, doesn't every parent still want their kids to go to college? Isn't that still the American dream? Aren't American universities still ranked number one in the world? I, I, you know, I live in LA. I looked up some statistics for my neighborhood. UCLA had 140,000 applicants for its first year class last year. My own campus, UC Irvine, just a kind of a middle level middle, 
uh, had 100,000 applicants last year. It's kind of mind-boggling. Okay, this is because it's an essential institution. You need that bloody credential to get a job, to stay in the middle class, to get into the middle class. It's not because they love their colleges. What we're talking about is a institution that's been hollowed out completely since the 1960s. Uh, 75% of all the instruction that is offered on American campuses are taught by what are called contingent faculty members. These are people who are part-timers, who often have to commute to teach uh, a number of courses on a number of campuses because they're only making $3,000 a course. They have to exist on food stamps. These, uh, their jobs are not secure. Um, so the quality of the instruction is declining for these structural reasons. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about decline. The first big topic of any discussion of the university in the 60s, of course, is student activism. And really, the great thing about your book is that it's not about the students. As you say, it's about the faculty. We've got a million books about SDS and what happened on different campuses. I, I can't forget hearing liberal sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset giving a talk to grad students in 1966, where he said he was supposed to talk about his research. And he told us that he was studying, quote, why students are revolting. You know, heh heh. Uh, he said, and he had a theory. Uh, he said they revolted at Berkeley. Uh, where he had taught before he left and came to Harvard because they were neglected in the multiversity. But in elite colleges, this was his theory in 1966, elite colleges are centered on, on students and it would never happen uh, at elite colleges. But then of course, two years later, Columbia revolted, the year after that Harvard revolted. Uh, but then he came up with a new theory. He said that privileged kids had the luxury of revolting, but it would never happen to working class kids at state colleges. The Ooh. next year, San Francisco State revolted. He quit his job at Harvard. He went to the Hoover Institution. The question that many faculties had to face was the anti-war movement's critique of ROTC on campus. Professors wanted to be able to say, this is a problem in the White House, in Congress. This is not a problem for us. But the students came up with the strategy of focusing on what they call, what we called university complicity in the war. Most campuses, especially state campus, state university campuses, had ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Program, where students got course credit for studying how to be military officers. And then when they graduated, they were sent to Vietnam as lieutenants where they led combat units. A lot of them got killed. So there was a direct link between training soldiers to go to Vietnam and giving them university credit for what were university courses. This really was a, a pressing issue on many campuses. The military relied very heavily on ROTC to staff its junior officer corps. And this was only one kind of protest that the students had against what their schools were doing. I assume, were you uh, at Princeton when they took over the IDA? I was already graduated. I had already graduated. What was IDA? The what was it called? Institute for Defense Analyses. It was a very high level 
body within the Pentagon that recruited the superstars of physics to solve the problems of their weapons. And it was only housed in, I think, a dozen very, very elite universities, MIT, uh, Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and uh, students, students um, also anti-war students very early on began to protest against the uh, position of this uh, war machine on the campus. They also protested against uh, the university allowing um, uh, military industries, especially Dow Chemical, which made uh, napalm, which was a sort of uh, goo that was dropped from helicopters and it burned people to death. Wonderful stuff. And um, it had been invented at Harvard, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> uh, anyhow, there was this uh, one form of protest besides the opposition to ROTC was against uh, the school's uh, allowing recruiters from the industry, uh, defense industries onto the campus. I want to talk about the conservative critique of all this. Conservatives, of course, have been complaining about liberals on the faculty going back to the 50s. Uh, that's where William Buckley got his start, got a man at Yale. But in the 60s, the complaint turned to the presence of radicals and, and eventually Marxists uh, running the college campuses. How ubiquitous were radicals and Marxists really on college and university faculties in the 60s? Well, they certainly weren't running the schools, that's for sure. The schools were being run mainly the administration and the overwhelming bulk of the faculty were liberals of a sort, liberals and moderates. Uh, certainly faculty members were not political activists by any manner of means. There were a few who were. They got hassled quite a bit. Some even were fired. But with only a few exceptions, they were able to get other jobs. But uh, there weren't a lot of um, radicals. Seymour Martin Lipset, who is the authority because he got tons of money from the Carnegie Foundation to run surveys, uh, sort of says it's less than 10% of the faculty. Probably the group that was probably most. So let's uh, talk a little bit about that 10%. The left on campus, especially, we're talking here about the faculty and, and some of the grad students, wasn't just protesting, they were also doing research and, and, and writing. And uh, one of the most uh, interesting parts of your book, The Lost Promise, is about the work of radical scholars and the organizations of radical scholars. What do you think were their most significant achievements? I'm thinking here about the organizations okay. of radical faculty members, ERPI, the Union of Radical Political Economists, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, Science for the People, and of course, our organization, Marho, the Radical Historians Organization, they did some pretty significant work. CCAS, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, they began to critique their own field. And that was happening in many disciplines, including very important work in the field of literature of expanding the canon. You know, people talk about Black studies. Well, Black studies, actually, there was a lot of Black studies. It was all at HBCUs. People didn't even know about it. And of course, Black scholars weren't hired by majority white schools, of course. But uh, what 
what's happening was people are discovering new writers, publishing uh, new sources in a number of fields. And of course, developing whole new fields, especially women's uh, studies and the social history of science. Another uh, one of the most important parts of your book is the attention you pay to Southern colleges and universities, which we don't hear much about. And you say there's a reason for that. They had a much higher level of repression. Tell us a little bit about what was going on in the South. Well, the South, of course, was an area of the country that was run by white supremacists, period. And even black colleges were run by whites once you got high enough, especially if they're public schools. And they have a student body that is uh, becoming increasingly more radicalized by the 60s, of course. And they are beginning to make demands on their colleges, not necessarily against ROTC or something like that, but for Black studies. Apparently, uh, there had been Black studies taught, Black history especially, at these segregated schools up until about the 40s or 50s. Then it's dropped because the schools are trying to upgrade themselves to be like the white schools. Oh, man. So they stop teaching Black history, if you can believe it. But there are enough um, Black uh, scholars who are still pushing you know, still infusing their students with a sense of uh, reality and what the history of African-Americans has been. So they're becoming radicalized that way. And um, what we see is an enormous amount of repression and repression against white faculty members who are also trying to sort of make statements about, well, you know, we, we should be allowed to talk about uh, race and things like that. So the hollowing out of the university that you talked about that, that has created this crisis of so much of the teaching is done by uh, temporary lecturers, this really began in the 70s with a crisis of, a public, uh, of funding for public universities. Yeah. Tuition at the University of California was free for residents in 1968. But uh, starting in the 70s, the, the state contribution to the university budget fell steadily until it was what it is today. Something like 10% of the budget of the University of California comes from taxpayers' funds in the state legislature. All the rest comes from either student tuition, government grants, or philanthropists. So. Uh, you know, one of the big questions that your book poses is, how can we explain this disaster? To what extent was this the result of conservative critique of the radicals in the university? There was also a huge economic recession in the mid-70s, and then there was the rise of this idea that, well, college helps you earn money and therefore uh, you should pay for it. How do you separate these out? Well, you don't separate them out. <laughs> it's all part of a um, sort of drive for austerity, a imposition of a neoliberal political culture uh, that comes in in the 1970s. And you probably know, have heard of the Powell memo. Okay. This is a very 
significant document back in the early 70s. The future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell was a very high-powered lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He had been president of the American Bar Association. He was a big-time lawyer, but he was also a raging conservative. And he is asked by his friend, who is about to become the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce's Education Committee. And what Powell writes is a 34-page document intended for big businessmen who are concerned about the fact that students coming off the campus have been brainwashed by their liberal professors and we have to do something to counter it. Now, he's also a uh, libertarian who believes that more and more things should be done by the market and the government should just get out of almost everything except police and military, I think. And so what you're getting is a prescription for a war on the liberal university that come, it's written in 1971. And he calls not only for throwing out the radical professors, that goes without saying, but also to construct a kind of counter institution uh, to take over American political culture. Uh, but it's this can, uh, attack on the university, a drive to privatize it as much as possible, to bring in a more pro-business pro atmosphere on the campus. They start uh, right-wing think tanks. They support graduate students. They create programs. This is the all of a lot of this is being funded by the Koch Foundation. Uh, and so we're getting an attack, a very clever attack on academic expertise. Uh, these are the people who are funding climate deniers. These are the people who are funding the uh, provocateurs like who come onto the campus and, and just make racist comments to provoke people, to get people upset. And then the university can't deal with it and they clamp down. And then all of a sudden, guess who's repressing freedom of speech? It's the left. Well, not quite. Anyhow, this is uh, what has begun with a pushback, a backlash against the 60s. And of course, the an important player in this whole thing is Ronald Reagan. Ellen Schrecker's new book is The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s. Ellen, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure, John. Finally, a bit more on Biden's decision to block that copper mine that Trump had approved for northern Minnesota, adjacent to the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area. That's the mine that threatened to contaminate the waters there with sulfide and toxic heavy metals. This wilderness area includes more than a million acres. It's a maze of forested lakes and streams and wetlands where motorized boats are not allowed. It's also the most visited wilderness area of the United States. 
This battle over a copper and nickel mine has been going on for decades. In 2016, the Obama administration refused to renew the mining company's leases for environmental reasons. The new owner, Twin Metals, a Chilean company, sued. In 2018, under the Trump administration, the Twin Metals leases were reinstated. Now Biden has declared a 20-year moratorium on all mining in the area. This battle has been fought by two great organizations, the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters and the Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. St. Paul's representative in Congress, Betty McCollum, has also been a vocal opponent of the Twin Metals Mine. She called the cancellation, quote, a rejection of the deeply flawed and politically motivated process under the Trump administration and a victory for sound science and protecting a precious and irreplaceable natural resource. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.